Hi, I'm Andrew. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, hi, my name is Andrew Schuldice, and I'm going to plug Kate's new game, Moonstone Island, which is a game where you collect uh, monsters and make them fight with cards and also do farming and dating. Wow, okay. Well, in that case, I'm going to plug Andrew's game. <laughs> we're, we're disgusting. Wow. Um, Andrew's game is called Tunic. It's about a tiny fox in a big world to explore the countryside, fight monsters, and discover secrets. Did I get that right? Is that you the got pitch? it right. Yeah, you should have pitched Gordy and the Monster Moon. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to plug having this uh, microphone on an arm so that it's not resting on my desk so that when I Google Moonstone Island to find out about it, it's not thunder in your ears. Mm, yeah, Andrew, take notes. Andrew mm. likes to type very loud. You got some, got some cherry blues in that bad boy. <laughs> uh, ah. I just have, it's the regular Microsoft Natural keyboard. Mm. I do actually have a um, a mechanical keyboard somewhere in this room, but nobody likes it. Nope, mm. nobody likes when I use it. Uh, I love it. I love the sound of mechanical keyboards. Yeah, clackier the better. I have an ergonomic keyboard because I've um, got bad wrists. It's got the ASMR action happening there. Someone like mm -hmm. whispering and like rubbing the microphone at the same time. Oh, yeah. They do do that a lot, don't they? It's weird. The, the, the whispering <laughs> I get, the rubbing the microphone I don't. No. It sounds like I'm stuck inside a rubber tunnel. <laughs> uh, are we ready to start on some topics? Yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, Kate, your topic is British food is good, actually. <laughs> This is such an aggressive stance to begin with, <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's necessary. Um, I brought this up the other day in a meeting, <laughs> which I don't usually talk about British food in meetings, but it was relevant, I promise, and realized just how passionate I am about this subject. I think British food gets kind of an unfair rap. Now, I, I will admit we have some awful dishes. We do. <laughs> But who doesn't really? Yeah, it's it's kind of a cultural thing is that there's always going to be something within your culture that is disgusting and bad. And that's part of having a culture, I think. If it was all uh -huh. good, that'd be terrible. It'd be a, a high standard to live up to. <laughs> yeah. A lot of British food, I find that it just falls under two categories. One being this is a super old culture in a place where not a lot of good food grows and for hundreds, thousands of years, we've had to deal with whatever can grow in the wet and dark as pretty much potatoes. And we've made do, you know, we've got a lot of potato and beef based dishes, uh, so much so that the French actually call the English Liros beef, which is roast beefs, because of all the roast beef that we eat, apparently. Is that a burn? Is that what they call them when they're being snarky? <laughs> the French are always being snarky about the British. Or is that in the dictionary? Uh, no, it's, it's probably in a French dictionary. Sure. What is the one bad French dish, if every culture has oh, a bad dish? Depends on your definition of bad. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of snails, but I think if I ate them, I'd probably enjoy them. Or frog. We we do actually, I mean, the British call French fro frogs, so. Mean. I've heard that one. <laughs> uh, the other kind of bad British food is rations-based. Obviously, we, we were very affected by wartime rations, 
And a lot of sort of well-known British foods came out of that because that was around the time of the advent of, you know, television and Americans becoming aware of Brits as more than just those bastards. (laughs) And so I think that got sort of widespread because of television where it's like, you know, they're eating all these like really stodgy foods with no sugar in them. And it's like, yeah, because we didn't have any sugar because of the war. And I think that a lot of traditional British dishes are better than those two things perhaps have given us a reputation for. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the the worst American foods are the foods that came from, you know, when you remember in the, I don't know if you would remember this, but in the 50s, we decided that we were going to improve food with science and mm. everything suddenly was canned. Yes. And like when you're in the Midwest and all you have is canned corn yeah. and canned soup, like <laughs> a certain cuisine comes out of that. Yeah. All those kind of like cool whip based salads. Right. It's, it's very much like, I think if I had to rank those with a bunch of the worst of British cuisine, they probably wouldn't come out very well either (laughs) but like beans on toast in particular i want to defend i know that that's to a lot of americans that feels more like those bad dishes that i just talked about but beans and carbs is beloved in most cultures come on come on how is it that different it's delicious i've never had this like i assume (laughs) the beans are like flavored with some kind of sauce yeah, it's like a sort of sweet-ish tomato sauce. Is it like baked beans? Do you know baked beans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know if baked beans in America are exactly like baked beans. Like the primary flavor is like brown sugar. Yeah, I think North America is leans a little sweeter on its baked beans, uh, as they do in general for like most yes, definitely. adaptations of food. <laughs> Yeah. Um, which is fun. That's fun. But like generally it's it's more of a savory dish. It's more of a tomato-y dish, but it does have a bit of sugar in it. And I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain to people that it's like refried beans in a tortilla. You know, if you like that, it's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> just, yeah, no, I get it. Thank you for believing me. <laughs> Yorkshire pudding, A, a plus British food. Yeah. Is yeah. that the is that the puffy one? Yeah, I think it's similar to a popover, but I don't uh-huh, fully uh-huh. know that. Yeah, um, and a Dutch baby is just a very big fruit filled <laughs> Yorkshire pudding. Okay, yeah. Fish and chips, obviously, everybody loves fish and chips. Uh, toad in the hole, which is a Yorkshire pudding with sausages baked into it. Excellent. I feel like the entire like Western style of Indian food comes from the UK. Interesting. Like through via the UK, via Britain specifically. Yeah, I mean, I have noticed I was talking to Andrew about this earlier today because we also ate some curry, um, which is that I think, and I'm, I may be wrong on this, but I think UK curry uh, and Indian flavors tend to come from the north of India because that is the bit that was, you know, colonialized. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> invaded, taken over by yes. the British. Ruined. South India influences North American Indian food more. That's interesting. That's not something I had heard. Yeah, moving over here, there's a lot of stuff. Um, there's also a lot of like Chinese Indian fusion over here that I wasn't oh, that familiar amazing. with. I know it is. It's so good. It's like dumplings covered in curry. Mm, it's incredible. <laughs> and so there's a lot of like foods over here that have either been born out of a Canadian Indian 
culture or they are more from the south of India, from the little triangle tip. So I'm learning. I'm learning a lot of new flavors, but it makes it really hard to get British, like popular in the UK curries. So like a korma, I, I cannot get, cannot find it. I found something called a korma in multiple Indian restaurants, but it is not anything that I would recognize as the sort of sweet, very mild coconut curry from my childhood. Right here, it's like spicy, and I'm like, no. The whole point in a korma is that it's the most inoffensively mild curry that you can get. For the record, <laughs> I do like spicy, but you know, sometimes you want the the soft things. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you want the non-spicy gravies. Yeah, and I do. Yeah the uh, the other thing that comes to mind, and this is something that I have never I've never been, so I can't say if I don't have firsthand experience. But the recipe that was going the the J Kenji Lopez Alt. <gasps> Roast potatoes. Do you know the ones yeah. I mean? Yeah. We're big fans of Kenji in this right. house. Oh, sure. And, and <laughs> why Why wouldn't you be? Those potatoes, I believe he credited them to the, the British cuisine. Mm -hmm. We're really, really good at the roast dinner because in America and Canada, a roast dinner is a thing you have on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Right. Maybe Easter. Right. Maybe. But even then, people are just as likely to have like a ham um, than they are like a, a big roast turkey, chicken, or like some kind of large lump of meat. Right. And the sides are always roast potato and then two vegetables. And you can you can kind of mix it up a little bit. Roast dinners tend to like come with a matching set of accessories, which I've always found very cute. Like beef comes with horseradish and Yorkshire puddings. Lamb goes with mint. I actually don't know what else goes with that. Anyway, mint, always mint. Um, pork goes with applesauce. My mom likes to have chicken with bread sauce, which is just bread and milk in a sauce. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If my mom is listening to this, I'm sorry. It sounds like you're familiar with fish sauce, which is just they put a fish in a bucket until it became sauce. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Yum. Mm. I do like a fish sauce, but only if I can't taste it that much. Well, exactly. That's the trick. Is if you can taste the fish sauce, they did it wrong. And Mar Marmite also on a similar vein. Marmite is an acquired taste, but I think everybody should acquire it. Yeah. <laughs> Mandatory Marmite. I tried yeah. it once in my early 20s and I was like, now I have this superpower, which is that I can say, unlike everybody else who's trash talking Vegemite without ever having tried it, I've tried it and I can <laughs> trash talk it having tried it. <laughs> yeah. Right away, Vegemite isn't the same thing. But The main problem with Vegemite and Marmite is that people don't know how to eat it, which... Sounds like a bad thing for a food. Like, oh, you just didn't eat it properly. Like, no, I'm pretty sure I know <laughs> it's how like to saying eat. you're playing the game wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, I put I put it on toast. That is correct. Okay, I, I got it right. You're not supposed to put it on like peanut butter. You're supposed okay. to put it on and immediately scrape all of it off. Oh, that's where I went wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And usually on butter because the butter kind of disperses it. Like, I eat Marmite insensibly. I don't even think that's a word, but I, I don't do it sensibly <laughs> is my point. Uh, I put it on and I'm like, yum, yum, yum. I want to feel my face like turn inside out. But for most people, if you put the butter on, you put the Marmite on, you take the Marmite off and whatever's left is the correct amount of Marmite. It's just like the barest scraping. Yeah. Good for, good for cooking too. Regarding the, the Sunday roast, um, my sister was on this show a couple of years ago and she told the story of visiting Britain and 
not realizing that you needed a reservation for any restaurant to get Sunday roast. Like apparently it's that important <laughs> mm -hmm. that like everything is booked up the, the, the day of. Yeah. Um, and she ended up like bouncing between like trying to try a bunch of different places and then ending up like at a pub who was, who had one Yorkshire pudding left. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, no. and she just ate the Yorkshire pudding and that with some gravy. So and, sad. and then went to catch the plane. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, pub Sunday dinner is always incredible. Uh, and we have this special thing that I haven't really witnessed so much in North America called a carvery, where the idea is every Sunday they set out an entire buffet table with a man at the end whose entire job it is to cut beef for you. <laughs> you go up to him and you say, I'd like some beef. And he carves off a little bit of beef. And there, it, there are places like that here. Really? Yeah. <gasps> but, I want to find some. But like, I think of them as like, um, uh, as like I, I can't remember the name of the cuisine, but I think of them as like a Brazilian cuisine. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I've seen places like that. They have okay. the kebabs and they shave them, right. something yes. like that. Yeah. 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 This is less fancy, more sort of like <laughs> a place you'd take your picky grandma for okay. dinner. All right. <laughs> Like a Hofbrau. I don't know. Okay. Oh. All right. <laughs> I, I think, well, I think of a Hofbrau as being like the kind of food your German grandmother would make. Mm, yeah. So like sauerkraut and mashed potatoes and stuffed peppers and sausages. Ooh, yeah. I mean, a carvery will normally have 20 to 30 feral children running around. <laughs> okay. All and right. it's loud and everyone's there. yelling. No one's really having a good time, and everything smells like beef. They serve the same purpose as the cats, the stray cats do. <laughs> Which stray cats? Oh, the stray cats around most, like, oh, so, for example, have you heard of the, the phenomenon of the bodega cat? I have, yeah. Yeah, some, some restaurants apparently just have 30 children instead. Of a bodega yes. cat. <laughs> yeah, and, and people make little social media accounts about the funny things that feral children do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah, let's do yeah. it. We got we to gotta keep it moving, or, or we could just talk about food all day. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew, your topic is, I'm really enjoying programming in monogame and stop motion animation. Uh, those are true things about what I've been doing. I picked up, I've been wanting for a long time to do some programming that is not in an editor. Like I did a lot of stuff in Unity and got sort of fed up with it even before the, the weird stuff that happened recently. And so I've been doing some stuff in Monogame, which is very like you have, you know, like a main loop and you can draw pixels to the screen and there's not much more than that. It's been hugely fun. I've had a lot of, lot more fun doing that than I've had fun doing a lot of things recently. And it occurred to me that it's the same sort of fun that I was having doing stop motion animation, which I had done like as a kid, but recently as sort of a goof, I downloaded a stop motion animation app on my phone and made like a 15 second video as a joke and like spent way more time on it than I should have. And it was really fun. And I think the thing that's similar in both of those is like, you've got good tools and just enough expertise to feel like you're really good at something, even if you're not right. The, the other name for this topic was the fun part of Dunning-Kruger, um, which is, and I, I don't know if this is like, the formal technical definition, but as people get started with something and 
they have low skill. They overestimate their abilities as compared to people who are really good at something who will traditionally or typically underestimate their abilities. Yeah. And that's usually framed as a bad thing. This person who's new thinks that they're incredibly good at it when they're really not that good at all. But I think there's something to be said for embracing that part of having like enjoying the fun part of the curve where there's so much to learn and you feel really powerful, whether it's because yeah. you it's, yeah. it's, it's fun as heck to practice a new skill, like learning a new skill, like that you learn so quickly at the beginning of the learning curve. Mm-hmm. Why not just like learn a new skill every day? Just to have the most fun part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's sort of like watching someone do a magic trick when you don't know how the magic trick works, except you're the one doing the magic trick. <laughs> you don't know the secret to your own magic trick. And so you just feel like you're doing magic. Until you figure out that how the trick works, and that's when you learn the skill properly, I guess. <laughs> figure out you're actually doing a terrible job, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's the problem with the, the, the programming and monogame thing is that the more I look into it and I think like, oh, this is so fun, it's organized, I'm doing a good job. The moment I start looking into how to do like a really good job, it's it's immediately starts to become less fun. I'm like, oh, geez, I gotta like do this really properly, and I can't have any singletons, and I've got to make sure everything's you know perfectly organized, and then it just becomes less fun. Listen, if you're making a 2D game, you really don't, yeah, you really don't need to optimize like almost ever, yeah, uh, so. absolutely. Like just so, leaning on the idea that's like the moment this stops being fun to make, you're doing it wrong, right? Yeah. If I think about like the projects I've done over the course of my life, the, the, the quality of the end result is pretty, has a pretty high correlation with how much fun I had doing it. Mm. Like Frog Fractions, there was nothing on that project that wasn't just a good time. <laughs> like even, even when I was like re-implementing like the text adventure engine from the, like the, the um, Infocom style text adventure engine, that was just a blast. Like I, I really do think there's a, a lot of value in just leaning into the good times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which it makes me think that I should never read a book about stop motion animation or look up anything uh, about how to do it properly. Well, just <laughs> unless unless you stop enjoying it, mm. and th- then I need to read uh, just a little bit more to make my no. T- then you t- just stop doing it entirely, and then, then you- I stop doing it entirely. Okay, right, right, and and you fill in the gaps with some other style of animation. That's what that's what I would do anyway. Yeah. I would like to do that with the, the, the Holy grail of that for me would be, uh, learning how to do music. But I, I feel like the, this, this curve that we're talking about where there's like, it's like a, like a ski slope. You've got this really fun part where you go down and then it plateaus and gets harder and harder. And you realize, you know, like, oh man, this is a bit of a slog now. There's also this little bit at the start, which requires a, just enough effort to get into it and learn the tools enough to get to the fun bit where you're learning lots. Yeah, I've never yeah, been yeah. able to do that with music properly. Yeah, I feel like music is one of those things where you kind of have to learn it as a kid. It's it's really hard to 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 make the time to pick it up properly as an adult. And then like, I mean, I I'm pretty good at music. Like, I can write a good song, but when I think about like my, my musician friends, the ones who do it for a living, they can write a song that is like Let's say it's ten percent better than mine, but they do it in the ten, and also in ten percent of the time, mm-hmm. and that's the big deal. Like that's like wh- I have some things that I'm very good at, and I have some things that I'm good enough at, and I think it makes a lot of sense to just do the things I'm really good at. I feel very lucky that my 
employable skill is writing because I never had to learn it. It was just <laughs> that you learn to write, you learn to read. And then as long as you keep doing them enough, you kind of get good at it by accident, just like passively, <laughs> which is really, you know, I'm good at writing because I work hard, right? Yes. Not just because I stumbled into it. Right. Uh, please hire me. Um, <laughs> but Well, working hard is itself a skill. Did you also always have that? No, I'm pretty bad at working hard. Okay. All right. All right. So that's Which something- is why I, I give up most hobbies after they start to get hard. That's something you could learn, perhaps. I'm like, ew, skills. No, I want to be good at everything naturally. I'm very different to Andrew. Are we ready for another topic? I guess so. There was a, was a heck of a lull. Heck of a lull. <laughs> uh, my topic is uh, light switch abstraction limit. I love that, like, my guests have have to provide enough information in their topic that I can choose them for the show, but I don't have to provide any information. I can just say I, light, stri- light switch abstraction limit, and people have to put up with me. I, I read that a few times on this spreadsheet, and I feel I've like been, I get it. My interest has been peaked. You okay? I do not. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how, how how we'll see how well you did. So we moved into a new place, and the new place has a bathroom that has two entrances. Each entrance has two light switches, uh, one for the lights and one for the fans. And no matter what the, the state of the fan is or the state of the light switch is, if you flip a light switch that, that corres- corresponds to it, it, it toggles the state of the light or the fan. Is that, do they call that exclusive or? Is that what that is? It, in, in, yes, in, uh, Boolean arithmetic, that's exclusive or. I think in, Oh, I forget what I forget what electricians call it, but they have a term for it too. It works flip flop. Mm. Um, that's what I say. And so I can I can handle it. Where like sometimes up is on on the light switch, and sometimes down is on. That's mm. fine. I can do that. But sometimes up is on on the on the light switch, and down is on on the fan. Ooh, that's and that's bad. too much. That's too much for me. I've hit my light switch abstraction limit. Mm. Got it. Yeah, I can imagine that the, the act of slamming the switch until the things toggle is fine if they're both in the same direction. <laughs> right. But if you exactly. got to do like a flick of the wrist or something to turn one off and the other up, one up and one down. A hand movement. But you're yeah. Like, yeah. You need, you need, yeah. <laughs> I suggest flailing at the wall until it does what you want. <laughs> That's your solution? It, it, it works. It just <laughs> takes time. Mm. See, that's actually not what I thought you meant. I thought it was more about the physicality of switches. Oh, sure. Because you ask someone to draw a light switch, there's a few different kinds that you could draw. Right. But they're going to look like a light switch. Um, And I feel like every time I move, I'm faced with a new kind of light switch where I'm like, what is this? Like the ones we have currently have a little secret dimmer on them. And it's very, very tiny. Yeah, we have we have a light light switch that's like a it's a push button and then also like a dimmer slide. Yes. I still haven't quite figured it out, but I think the push button toggles between two states. Okay. When you're in either state, you can use the dimmer to set the the amount of light that that state yeah. corresponds to. <laughs> so wait, you can have something that's off but still dimmed? I think so. What does that mean? You got to stop thinking of it as off and on. You think of it as on and different on. <laughs> Incredible. Okay. 
Off is just a different kind of on. This is why we've moved. Man. We've moved to smart lights. We don't have to deal with this most of the time. Oh. We have to deal with different problems, but so many different more problems. Manageable. Yeah, usually, usually involving <laughs> GitHub. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, that's your bread and butter. You understand GitHub. Light switches, <laughs> no chance. Eldritch technology, don't get them. Bad UX. Do you do you understand GitHub? <laughs> do, do I? No. Do I understand GitHub? <laughs> because like I started using GitHub in like 2014 and used it professionally for like eight years and still don't definitely don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I I do not claim to understand it at all. Okay, really. All right. I did, like I did, I've done. I did my first. I worked on a project for like seven years and in the seventh year did my first pull request. Because somebody oh no. else fixed a bug on it. Oh my god! I've still never done one of those. <laughs> uh, it feels very um, uh, not perfunctory. Like I feel it makes you know um, when someone brings you uh, wine at a restaurant, and you're supposed to like check to make sure that it's the right kind of wine by tasting. <laughs> and a you're bit. just going through the motions. <laughs> That's what a pull request from a better programmer than you is like. Where they're like, oh, Sounds good to me. Approve. This is like if I said I didn't understand nouns (laughs) and I've just been muddling along this whole time. Well, no, imagine like, you know, you've been writing for 20 years Mm -hmm. and then suddenly someone adds on an additional complicated layer to writing. That's like completely (laughs) ancillary to the old writing. But now you have to know this kind, this thing too, in order to function as a professional writer. It's a new type of pencil that everybody has to use. <laughs> and it's really weird and complicated. Right, right. And an explicit design goal of the pencil is that we do things differently from all the other pencils. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an open source pencil and people keep <laughs> bolting things onto the pencil. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a great analogy. Mercurial <laughs> was the fountain pen of the version control system world. That's my hot take. Okay. This is very niche. I love it. I've <laughs> heard good things about Mercurial. Never had any firsthand experience, unfortunately. It's all been Git. Mm. Yeah, Git, Git shouldn't have won, in my opinion. I think Mercurial is the more, I don't know, human-centric thing. But okay, we, we've we've gone far afield. What, do you have a solution to your light switch abstraction limit? <laughs> oh, well, one thing that helped a lot was realizing that the the light switch like at, at at first I didn't even know which was the fan and which was the light switch. We've made flailing even harder, <laughs> but now that I have established that the light switch is the one that's closer to the door uh, in both for both doors, I just take things like I just live life one step at a time. I, I separate the tasks. I've got I, I'm turning on the lights now. I'm turning on the fan. I uh, don't try to just slam them both on at once. I feel like there's okay. some wisdom in here, you know, breaking the task up into smaller subtasks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's literally the message behind uh, hit video game Pikmin 4, <laughs> which everyone should play. <laughs> uh, do you want to know what our high tech solution to this light switch problem has been in our lives that isn't smart lights? Because that's not a solution. That's is just it, is it a handgun problem? Yes. No. <laughs> it's uh, it's tape. If you tape down a light switch, then you won't use it, and then you'll okay. use the correct one. And you won't accidentally turn off the phone that's charging on the other side of the room. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Tape it down. Okay. But I want to be able to turn the lights on and off. Right. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Maybe that's not 
a good solution. Well, what about what about Dendori? Can Dendori help me? <laughs> yes, if you get a bunch of little men to uh, carry out your tasks, then something something profit. Okay, all right. Thanks, Pikmin. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm operating at a loss on this whole Pikmin thing. I lost like sixty bucks on it. Oh. I still haven't made any money back. I don't know if you know how video games work. <laughs> They're supposed to be sinkholes for money. <laughs> okay. Well, my mistake. <laughs> are we uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Uh, this topic is, oh, I wrote this down, and then I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, this, we're <laughs> we're going to be doing this poem called Un Petit d'un Petit. Is that right? No. But it's okay, because I can sort of explain it, because I think it does need a little bit of explaining. Okay, well, 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 first we read the poem. Okay. And then we explain it. Okay. And then you can go back and listen to it on, on your podcast app and understand. That's right. Yeah, you can rewind. Okay. Apologies for my French accent. It's not going to be good. <clears throat> un petit, d'un petit, c'est un noal. Un petit, d'un petit, a de great fall. Andolon qui ne sauces, andolon qui ne se mène, qu'importe un petit, un petit, tout gai de regain. <laughs> Yay! That's, Thank you. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> so, should I explain? Yes, please. I, okay, okay. So, this is from a uh, 1967 book called Mot de Goose Ram, which I'm not saying in a French accent. Um, the idea behind this is that. It is nursery rhymes written to be read aloud. They're entirely written in French. The French is, uh, makes sense a little bit, but not very, because it is what's called a homophonic translation. And the idea is that when you read it out, it sounds like a very French person reading the English version of the nursery rhyme. <laughs> so the nursery rhyme I just read was Humpty Dumpty. Um petit dumpty. Right. Umpity dumpity. Um, but what does the what is the French saying? What is the translation of the French? <laughs> French is kind of nonsense. Okay, so the the other thing about this book is that it has tons of footnotes because this guy is playing it like very straight. The person who wrote it, he's he's explaining these rhymes that he found and explaining why they used specific French words and and what the deeper meaning is supposed to be. It's obviously all nonsense. So uh, the actual translation of this is. A child of a child is surprised at the market. A child of a child, oh, degrees you needed. Lazy is he who never goes out. Lazy is he who is not led. Who cares about a child of a child like Guy of Regens, which is a, a man with a title, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> and the footnotes, <laughs> uh, the first line, un petit d'un petit, which means the child of a child, the footnote says, the inevitable result of a child marriage. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so this, this entire book is just for this very specific kind of nerd who probably went to Oxford or Cambridge in like the 60s or 70s and can read these French-English nursery rhymes, understand them on like three different levels and, you know, have a little sensible chuckle to themselves about how clever everything is. <laughs> that is, that's a delight. That's delightful. It's wonderful. I, I am, I'm not that nerd because <laughs> I could under, I could understand them on one level and only when they're read aloud. Uh, that's kind of the joy, I guess. Like, I think 
my parents got this book for me when I was maybe 18 because I was going off to study languages and I'd been doing French for a while and none of them really spoke French or anything like that. So they just made me read all of them out loud and then tried to guess which nursery rhymes they were, right. which was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm super into books that are just linguistic jokes. Like there's the, the novel without the letter E. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. I think that would stress me out. I don't know. Reading it? Like you'd be... <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean like, so it's like a, a photograph that's composed so that like that where the composition is lopsided. So you feel like like something's about to jump into the frame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like like Slender Man. It would be right. like Slender Man. Yeah. Like just waiting for an E to slip in. Like mm. I'm sure they control F'd E, didn't find any and were like, I did it. Uh-huh. I'd be looking out for the E because if I was a copy editor, copy editing oh, I'm, that I'm book, I think sure. I'd go mad. Yeah, this book was before Control F, and I'm pretty sure they did miss one. Oh no, I would die. You're serious? There's a there's a stray E in there somewhere. That's what I heard. Incredible. Maybe you're allowed one as a treat. <laughs> <laughs> one E as a mistake. There is also a a Latin poem that is a homophonic translation. Do you want to hear it? It's very short. <laughs> let's let's hear it. Okay. So this one, it doesn't actually Is this in the same book or No. This is okay. uh, there's a lot of really dorky stuff when you learn Latin. Um because <laughs> it's just who would have guessed? <laughs> super nerdy weirdos and and they you know make fun jokes that no one else is gonna get. Okay. <clears throat> Caesar add some yam forte, Brutus add a rat, Caesar sick in omnibus, Brutus sick in at. It doesn't make any sense in Latin, but the idea is that Caesar eats some jam for tea, Brutus had a rat, Caesar was sick in an omnibus, a bus, and Brutus was sick in a hat. It's an extremely <laughs> like this was invented in 1920 kind of right. joke. Yeah, back when they knew what an omnibus was. I know. <laughs> it's adorable. But I, I can just imagine the kind of like boys at like a really fancy British school yeah. that would have made that up. And it makes me like it a little bit Well, less. listen, like atheism, atheism had just been invented. Mm. So they could no longer argue about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> they had to think of something. Uh, Are we uh, ready for another topic? Fire it yeah. up. Andrew, your topic is the old-timey computer show. Okay, this is mostly a public service announcement because I think people need to know about it. Uh, the old-timey computer show is a is a Twitch channel. It's on twitch.tv slash old-timey computer show. And as far as I know, it runs continuously. Maybe it's not 24-7, but I've never seen it not running. And it's a bunch of like vintage footage from mostly the 80s and 90s, like VHS rips of you don't rip a vhs what do you do scan i don't know i think you rip it you rip it (laughs) okay that's what i would say but uh uh, tv shows from the era talking about like this new internet thing or the latest hard drive with 40 megabytes of space uh or old video game promotional sizzle reels or um old like japanese promotional videos uh, or how to repair this Apple printer. And it's it's just varied enough that every now and again, I'll be like, I wonder what's on the old-timey computer show. 
Um, but just consistent enough that I can think, and I'm probably going to like it. Right. Yeah. I've got it up right now with no audio and it's some people sitting around a desk and talking to each other. So I feel like I'm missing out on some important, an important <laughs> aspect of, of the, uh, of the footage, but yeah, like the, do you think this started with somebody who's just, whose hobby was collecting old, like computer related VHS tapes or something? It's got to be like, I'm sure there's a, there's a story here, but I can't imagine that you think to yourself, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start this from scratch. Like, I feel like you need to, you, you, you've got a starting point. You've got a, a giant van load of yeah. uh, VHS tapes Yeah, that you have to rip. Yeah. Do you think ripping can only apply to like optical to, or can you rip a NES cartridge? You, I think you dump a cartridge. You dump you, a cartridge. <laughs> you rip optical media. You, you rip a CD. Maybe you digitize a VHS tape. Yeah, that's very clinical. It's a less you um, violent. If you burn a CD, right? What's the equivalent for douse? <laughs> you douse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, there's a, these oh, these people are smoking on this video they're just oh, like so old-timey yeah. yeah and they've got they've got collars i bet you these are ibm folks the the thing i liked about the old-timey computer show is when you told me about it andrew it was so precisely engineered to appeal to you that i was like <laughs> i think this is a trap yeah there's like there's a stick nearby holding up a box <laughs> yeah like it's like oh the the free cake and donuts half hour <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> but apparently it's, it's real and it's just that more than Andrew. Well, the trap just hasn't sprung yet. They got to get oh, yeah. as many yeah. as many old nerds in the box <laughs> as they can. Well, right now they've got 43 people watching, apparently. Let's get all those <laughs> 35 plus video game dorks and then we'll trap them and then we'll make them something 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 you did you you enjoy parts of it too there's a lot of british content including Mm. um what was the tv show is called mastermind no master what's the 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 show where it's a british guy games master games master yeah so tell me about games master dominic diamond uh who is currently (laughs) writing for the guardian's game site which is pretty weird and then oh i don't remember his name but there's a big face (laughs) yeah they've done they've done a thing where like the the mascot of the show is like the big cybernetic head man who's like you need to play the video games and they've just done the thing where they 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 (laughs) i don't know they've got him on a tv or something but then they've filmed the tv by pointing another camera pointing down at it so his head looks really big like his forehead is huge (laughs) so people go up to him usually like 13 to 16 year old boys and they go hello games master i'm stuck on the third world in super mario can you please help me and then this man wait they ask him about mario they ask him about all sorts of games yeah most of them you've heard of didn't have mario in britain No, Mario. Super Gianna sisters. Mario. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Mario. It's Mario over there. And Luigi. All they have is they just have Dizzy, Dizzy, and Manic Minor. Lemmings. That's that's British. Lemmings is pretty good. Yeah, Lemmings is British. Absolutely. Hooray! Wait, Lemmings. I think Lemmings is Scottish. Oh, that's British though. They count. We're allowed to have them. All right. As a treat. As a treat, we get to (laughs) yum yum. Um, and uh, elite, right? Uh huh. 
And the Hitchhiker's Guide, I, I assume the text adventure was British. Uh, well, Infocom was based in, I think, Cambridge. Which one? Which one? Massachusetts. Sorry, no! I, didn't, no! I, didn't, I didn't mean this to be. Uh, I didn't mean this to be a, a cliffhanger. I think we get half ownership of that right. one, surely, because right. Hitchhiker's Guide—that's British as you, you get Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail your description of this <laughs> of this show. Uh, yeah, they, they go up to the games master and they, and they ask, and it's basically the equivalent of like calling the Nintendo helpline or writing into a magazine and then getting in the letters page or whatever. Right. And the games master who I looked it up, he's Sir Patrick Moore, um, from off of something, <laughs> a <laughs> bunch of things. I don't know. He's a sir. So he's pretty important. And he's probably never played a video game. So he's just reading out a script where he's like, ah, what you need to do is jump on the mushroom and then you should get to the end of the level. Yes, good luck. And usually he's kind of mean to them as well because that's sort of the British way. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I don't know why that is. And then they have like a bunch of, like they'll make two children fight against each other on Crash Bandicoot or whatever. Well, sorry, the British version of Crash Bandicoot, which is, oops, a Daisy's Badger. Okay, all right. <laughs> Good show. <laughs> oh, and the, the magazine Games Master spun off of that. If anybody remembers that, probably not. It's a British no, I haven't, haven't read that one. Haven't read that one. Uh, that, 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 no, it does, this is making me want to watch the show. It makes me wish that, or hope, that uh, the old-timey computer show will have episodes Oh yeah, they're probably all on YouTube because I don't think anybody particularly cares. Right. And I, it was kind of like the a big deal, I think, in like the UK games media, which barely existed at the time. Uh, you know, like they would preview games on it, things like that. That was a good time. Yeah, I was really hoping this this ancient knighted old man was actually a game expert that just knew everything about every game. <laughs> Very cute. Uh, apparently, he was in the Air Force, which is like a video game. There's a lot of buttons in a plane. That's this is fair. Yeah, <laughs> you also have joysticks. Yeah. Yep. And you think that that means that he was pretty bummed that he went from being in the Air Force to telling children to crouch on the white platform in Super Mario Brothers Three? It's a living. He was very old. <laughs> I don't know if he really cared at that point. <laughs> I don't know who this man is. I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page and learning all of this in real time. <laughs> oh yeah, now now we've got the we got the Spectrum video games showing on the. <gasps> oh, and here's a, a a policeman on a unicycle. <laughs> so British. <laughs> I uh, I named a character in Moonstone Island after the ZX Spectrum, and I keep telling people, and everyone's like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm like, oh god, okay. <laughs> Either because, like, I guess it's not that big of a deal outside the UK or because they're not very old, I guess. Well, it's so not a big deal that whenever I, whenever I talk about the ZX Spectrum, people are like, what? Are you just being pretentious by saying Zed? <laughs> Zed, yeah. And I was like, no, I'd say it. that's how people pronounce it. You can't say it. the ZX Spectrum. I've never heard anybody ever say ZX Spectrum. No. And it's it's quite a beautiful machine. Like it has a really nice color scheme to it. It's, like a rainbow, it's very yeah. iconic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it deserves better. There is there is something special about that machine, but the thing that like when I think about actually developing for it, mm. 
like the idea of programming on that keyboard. Um. And then like, <laughs> and then like if your program crashes, you have to reload. You have, first you have to save it to tape. And then if your program crashes, you have to reload it from tape. Yeah. Like, and that's a, <laughs> What we, we were at we were at the other Cambridge, the one in the UK. Um, the first Cambridge. This year, the first Cambridge OG. Prime. <laughs> uh, and um, there, there's a, Kate, as a surprise, took me to the, um, what's it called? The Computer History Museum? So Retro History of Computing. Compute has Museum of something like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. they had a million old 8-bit computers there and it was awesome. And one of them was... Uh, ZX Spectrum, mm-hmm. and yeah, what a what a tremendous nightmare. Yeah, but it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it looks great, and it has the same color scheme as Teletext, which I'm really into. It's also a very British thing that is hard <laughs> to explain. That's a whole other topic in and of itself. <laughs> That's true. I should have written that one down. I love Teletext. Everyone should look into Teletext. Go go type it into Google now and have a fun evening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess yeah. You would just run it. And realistically, you'd run it in an emulator. Mm. You just make the game on your on your Windows or Mac PC and run, <laughs> Mac PC. Huh? <laughs> I just invented that phrase. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> uh, and then run it in a, uh, a Spectrum emulator. But you could hypothetically like send it over some sort of some sort of cable. Mm. Like I, this is something that um, I remember reading that a lot of the people who uh like the Oliver twins for example yeah they never actually used the spectrum they uh, i believe they did their develop- their development on a commodore 64 and just like ported it over without touching it <laughs> yes well they had to, they had to, to touch the machine to play the game to test it but they never actually used the the spectrum to to, to write the program uh and I, they talked about like meeting a kid who had a programming question for them and was like, how do you, you how do you type this this programming related character on the spectrum? And they were like, well, mm. we have no idea. <laughs> We've never actually used the spectrum. Oh, I, I have a soft spot for the Oliver Twins because much like a lot of early British game designers, I think that they just wrote a bunch of words down on post-it notes, put all the post-it notes on the floor, and then tossed objects onto the floor to uh-huh. pick what their game would be about. And they were like, egg, egg it is. Okay. Everyone loves <laughs> egg. <laughs> and they were right. Everyone does love egg. Uh, so a, a Burger King stealth game. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Like maybe that's how we should do game design. Like lemmings is just a bunch of suicidal tiny boys who learn to do jobs <laughs> and then immediately forget. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I've got a, a different perspective on this, which is you might say the same thing about my work. Like it has the same kind of unpredictable nature to it. But I can tell you that my design approach is extremely methodical. Mm. Like, oh, hello. We have my son here. <gasps> what, what's the question, buddy? Why is there a pirate ship on the, on the picture? On the Mario poster. Oh, that's the, that's the flying, that's Bowser's flying airship. He just disassembled my uh, microphone stand, so if the whole thing collapses, oh, no. <laughs> good night, buddy. That was an on-topic question. I'm impressed. <laughs> I hope that came across. Uh, what was I? Oh, oh, my approach is very methodical in that I I'm trying to solve a problem, and I look at like the, the assets that I have and the skills that I have, and I think of a solution using those assets and skills. Mm, that's smart. 
That's a really good idea. And sometimes it involves like making a game about an egg. <laughs> what can I draw? Circle? Uh-huh. Egg? <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Genius. Hey, you don't have to worry about pixel art with an egg. It's really easy. Yeah, I, I actually really do think that probably it's an egg because eggs are easy to draw. Yeah. <laughs> They were very smart to do that. Mm, but then we also have isometry, which I guess isn't necessarily an Oliver Twins thing. Yeah, um, that was that was rare, I think, that, that kicked yeah. off that phenomenon. And mm-hmm. Rare's thing was, well, we can do anything. We can just flex on this hardware. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, that's an early form of 3D, I guess. And, like, that's a classic, um, how do you make programmer art look good approach, is you, you, do, you do fancy programming tricks to make it look fancy. Oh, oh heck! In, in tunic, like the art is very simple. Like the, uh, but you're using like you know bloom and ambient occlusion and all the. Mm. You, you turned on all the shaders, <laughs> busted out all the good tricks. Yeah, slap a shader on it. It's <laughs> it's the uh, black dress of video games. Everyone looks good with a shader. That's right, and then now it looks fancy. <laughs> you're you're blowing my blowing up my spot. <laughs> revealing all my my development secrets uh dizzy revival huh hmm. dizzy revival maybe dizzy should make a comeback i think um, yeah is that the kickstarter that asked for like 350,000 pounds and got like 20,000 oh no oh i hope not that was a sad state of affair that was like uh probably 2012 or something like that yeah, oh, I'm reading about this now. Oh, but that—I don't think that's Dizzy Revival. I think Dizzy Revival might be like we found three extra Dizzy games in the attic, mm. and we can release them. They're—they're they're all incredible. Right, right. I'm sure. Yeah, like Rev Replay, but it's an egg. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, egg prototype. Dot. Oh my god. Basic. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do another topic? Yes, definitely. The other thing that uh, the old-timey computer show should, should include is like all of the game development-related stuff from Bandersnatch. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Charlie Brooker used to work on games magazines in the same office that I used to work in, but not at the same time. Okay. So he has, you know, a pedigree in maybe not game development, but knowing about games right. at least. Yeah, having been around game developers. Yeah, and uh, I think he got a few of the people who he worked with to help with Bandersnatch. Oh, cool. Which it's very interesting. I'd love to see the behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kate, your topic is trying to get your friends to play a game that sucks to learn. <laughs> yeah. I could have also cut this off at trying to get your friends to play a game that sucks. Uh-huh, yeah. Because that is kind of the vibe. So there are, there are two games that I have in mind here. One is a board game slash card game called Killer Bunnies, which uh, I love it so much. It has too many rules. The art on it is really, really ugly. And games can either go on for five minutes or five hours. (laughs) Trying to get anyone to learn the game is like... It's like trying to tell your friends about a weird family tradition. And as you're telling them about the tradition, you realize how messed up it is. And you're like, (laughs) but it's fun. I I promise. But no one will play it with me because I start unpacking the box and there's like so many things going on and all of it is ugly. And they're just like, can't we just play like code names instead? Or (laughs) 
anything. Um, there, but it is fun. Aesthetic appeal to killer bunnies, and it's like kitchen sink game. It feels like a yeah. game that you like, much like you, we were talking before about like, oh, it just seems completely arbitrary that they chose an egg. Like, no, no, there's probably a reason that they chose an egg. Killer bunnies feels like it's a game you made up with your friends when you were nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just like, it's rules on rules on rules. And there's also like 13 expansion packs. And the more expansion packs you have, the funner it is. And every expansion <laughs> pack adds like a new, like five new rules. Like one of them is like, now there are dice. And then every new expansion pack is like, I got you more dice for the dice part of the game that I invented. And it's just, you end up with a pile of cards that's like 500 cards or something. So you can't even like have tactics because uh-huh. you might get a bunch of stuff that you've never used before even. Oh, it's so bad. It's so yeah, good. That's that's the kind of game that should be a computer game. Oh, I don't know if it would translate very well. <laughs> it's very tactile. There's all these little counters and dice. And the the final part of the game is <laughs> this stupid thing called like the magic carrot. And so there is a big deck of cards of magic carrots. There's like 20 of them. And everybody in the game has been collecting these magic carrots throughout the whole thing. And then there's a mini deck of cards for the magic carrots. And uh, it is a rule that at the end of each game, you decide who wins by slowly drawing all of the magic carrots until only one remains and that's the winner. So you go through 20 of these teeny tiny little cards being like, this one's dead, this one's dead. And it's painful. You you could just draw a card to find out which one is the winner, no. but they make you do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And also you've been playing this incredibly complicated game for, you know, up to five hours and then at the end, it's like a random draw who wins. It's terrible. It's like Mario Party rules. <laughs> Basically. Uh, uh, so that's one of the games that sucks. The other game, <laughs> I think, potentially sucks even more. But it's actually easier to learn. It's called Mao, M-A-O. Oh, yeah. I hate that game. You hate that game. <laughs> See? <laughs> Me of all people, you'd think I'd be into it. I know. I said the same to Andrew because... so. Mao is, it's a game with rules and you're not allowed to know them. And as you're playing, there are set rules. They change a little bit, but basically imagine it like Uno, like one card reverses, one card is pick up two, one card is skip a player, that kind of thing. No one else knows the rules, but normally the dealer does because they're the one who's making everybody play. And every time you break a rule, you get a penalty, which is a card. Much like Uno, you're trying to get rid of all your cards. But the bit where it gets really fun is that at the end of a game, the person who got rid of all their cards first gets to make up a rule for the next round and not tell anyone what it is. But they are allowed (laughs) to give out penalties for people breaking that rule. And the rule can be anything. It can be another rule where it's like, oh, if you put down this card, it reverses direction again. Or it can be like pick up six cards. But what's more fun is to make a rule where it's like every time you play a card, you have to sigh a little bit and no (laughs) one's picking up on it. And you're just penaltying every time someone puts down a card until someone sighs by accident. And then you're like, "Hmm, yes, very good. And they're like, what did I do? And you just play it over and over again. Every round, someone's adding a stupid rule. Everyone's penaltying each other. Slowly, people are picking up on the base rules, which are, as I've said, 
relatively set in stone until you all are so good at Mao that you can actually play a game quite competently and win it, even if you don't really know what the new rules are. And I, I think that a lot of people would like this game because it does have that kind of puzzly, figuring out things angle that I know both of you like. Right. However, the first round is the hardest because the first round is the one where I'm being a bastard and I'm right. just handing out penalties yeah. and no one understands why and no one wants to play with me anymore. Right, exactly. Yeah, like this is – I've never played Mao, but I have observed it being played, but mm -hmm. only the first round. And I was like, this is a game where somebody tortures their friends. <laughs> yeah, And exactly. this, is, this is not fun for anybody but them. No. Yeah, and th that's why I can't get anyone to play it with me. Subsequent rounds actually sound okay. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess I could start off being like, okay, well, here are the rules, but that's boring. That's not the point. It feels like it's violating yeah. the spirit of it somehow. Yeah, yeah. and I think this is a, actually does make a very interesting comparison to the kind of video game that I like best, which is the kind that where you are supposed to like puzzle out the rules, puzzle yeah. out how the game works and what what's happening. This this doesn't work for for board games because mm. board games you the instructions are the, are the game you need to yeah. read all the instructions and then you play the game, but in a video game the fun part can be and often is like figuring out what the game is even doing and like a tutorial would be like let's just fast forward through the best part of the game let's just skip that part yeah, yeah exactly the, the fun part is sort of like walking up against the walls of the game. Yeah. Like literally or metaphorically to find out what the limits are. Right. And I think the difference between that and Mao is that the video game wants you to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And wants you to figure out how to play it. And people work really hard to make sure that it's learnable in a kind of a, it's definitely like a fine line you walk between like making it learnable versus being didactic about it. Yeah, it's definitely carrot versus stick. The game is rewarding you for figuring things out by like unlocking doors. And I am being the villain by being like, <laughs> no, you got it wrong again, you idiot. So, yeah. And I'm the one who wants to play it with people. So if I'm the villain, that makes it extremely hard to continue. Right. Yeah. Uh, I have a similar vibe to the, there's like a category of, we play that camp sort of team building exercise. Like, <laughs> what are you bringing to the potluck? Oh, I'm bringing those this games thing. Suck. And it's like, oh, it needs to be a food with the letter E in it or something. <laughs> and everybody's just trying to puzzle out what the rules are. It's like that, except there's a person walking around the circle and wrapping you on the knuckles <laughs> if you do it wrong. Yeah. So, have you considered telling people? how the game works and then just skipping right to the second round where there's only one secret rule. So I tell them how the game works and then say, but there's an extra rule that I won't tell you. Teehee. Right. Or, or you could let anybody make up the rule. How do I know who it would be? Well, okay. Well, that could be a different. First you play Monopoly <laughs> and whoever wins that. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Who goes first to Monopoly though? Mm. Mm. I think the rules actually, the rules of Monopoly cover that. Oh, okay. Uh. So is there, is there a more palatable version of Mao where everybody is sort of gently introduced to the idea and then everyone can invent their own rule and penalize one another? I feel like this is like someone being like, you can, you can watch a scary movie, but I'm going to yell every time something scary happens. 
so you can't enjoy it. That happens all the time with scary movies, though, is people just <laughs> yell. This is a bad analogy. It's like, okay, letting your young child watch a blue movie, but covering their eyes on all the sexy scenes and being like, it's basically like you've seen it. So you're saying that the fun part, the in the uh, yeah. uh, the part that is inexorable from the fun of the game is you penalizing people arbitrarily or seemingly arbitrarily? Because, because I think having played this game a lot with a group of friends that did really enjoy the game, the fun part is when you understand a rule and you can penalize someone and then you look at the dealer to be like, did Cap... And the dealer's like, nod. Yeah. It feels so good. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> I, I was just imagining how it felt. And yeah, it felt good. Yeah. I feel like playing Mao with one other person then would be a catastrophe. Yeah. It's, it's three plus, I think. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just a vindictive to play a game where <laughs> one person's having a bad time. But I don't have that many friends that would play it with me. So I guess we'll never find out. I, okay. You've, you've won me over. I, yes. I thought that it would be terrible, but yes. you've won me over. I, I I feel like I should give it a try. We just need to find someone who would yeah. also get it to a certain extent. Well, I was saying this before when we were discussing these topics. It's sort of a psychologically revealing game because it's like, well, you, you can't play it with anyone who's impatient. Full stop. They just will not put up with it. You can't play it with someone who has a kind of chip on their shoulder about not knowing things, which is quite common. Uh, a lot of people will be, they'll feel like left out or like they're the butt of a joke if they're the one that keeps getting given penalties and they won't react very, very positively. And then usually they yell at me, which is not fun for me. <laughs> and you can't play it with anybody who doesn't trust you that it's going to get better. So you can't play it with new friends. I would like to posit that if you're playing this game with your friends that you deserve to be yelled at. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I guess that's sort of the point of, at the very least, the first and second round is that I'm, everyone is uniting against me <laughs> and trying to have fun despite me. And then once they get into it, they'll be like, ah, oh, Kate was right all along and she's the best. <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Anyway, play Killer Bunnies and Mao with me. I'm sure it'll be fun for everybody eventually. <laughs> are, we, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Uh, my topic is Winston has discovered that the ending of a story is usually the most exciting part, so he doesn't want to watch whole movies anymore, just the last 20 minutes of each. This actually isn't true anymore. It was when I wrote this down. So he's out these past this phase now. Mm. But like for a good month, like – he would so first the the first thing that happened was that he would only want to watch the last twenty minutes of what was it Spider Man into the Spider Verse or something like that and he would watch it over and over again but then he realized like that there are other movies that have exciting endings and he would just <laughs> yeah. yeah you guys heard about conclusions <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's, it's amazing you can skip all the boring stuff and just get the cool action sequence of the ending. I, I have some questions about this. Is there is there more context? Um, you 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 got it. It's, is it okay? So is it just the last twenty minutes, or is there enough? Does he want to watch the beginning to get the setup and then fast forward to the ending? Well, he had or already you, seen the whole Spider Man movie, right? But no, um, this was happening with movies he'd never seen before and did not know the setup of Sixth Sense. Shutter Island. <laughs> never showed him Sixth Sense. That's, that's a good idea, though. <laughs> 
yeah. try to get his <laughs> I'll learn him. Get his uh <laughs> get his opinion. I think this might be the correct way to enjoy a Dan Brown novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> um and I find Dan Brown novels to be delightful romps, but usually most of the book is is not very relevant to the ending where he's like, ah, the secret was this thing that you didn't know and that didn't exist until five minutes ago. Ha ha. Okay, Daniel. Yeah, it, it's so I, I guess I've never read. I've seen a Dan Brown movie. Similar. I've never read a book, one of the books, but it, it sounds a little bit like it's just a bunch of stuff happens and then there's an ending. It's like, what if somebody read you a bunch of related Wikipedia pages and then made some sort of riddle at the end? Okay. Which is supposed to be so difficult that no one's ever managed to solve it before, but actually it's just like a Latin word backwards or something. <laughs> and, and Dan's sitting there going, ho ho, so clever. You drive backwards from the starting line and that's how you get to the seat. <laughs> Secret that no one's ever found. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I have a whole thing about that too. Andrew knows that. Um, I call it. I call it the go left problem. It's not really a problem. Oh yes, yes. That because you know in platformers, if you go left, sometimes there's secrets. Right. I like when games do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I love I love secrets. I love when games have secrets. Yes. And I love when like like. Players love to push at the edges of games, mm. and they also love it when the games acknowledge that they're doing that. Absolutely. Like in any, in any number of ways, they can acknowledge it. They can just pop up a little dialogue box saying, hey, you're pushing at me. I noticed. Mm. And that's enough. Yeah. Particularly the go left thing is like the game has taught you a mechanic in particular that you have to go right, and it has left a gap where the opposite thing is assumed to be false. Yeah. Like going left. But they never said it was false. So right. you kind of have to be like, can I go left? And sometimes the answer is yes, you can. Oh, you figured out my puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Brown is not like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. We were talking about Dan Brown. Um, dude, does the, the the rest of the book factor into the puzzle at the end or something? Like, uh, no, the the the, the vaguest okay. reference to I think I don't know. It's been a while since I've read a, a lot of the riddles he does at the end are usually about like romantic relationships. So one of them, spoilers for I think Digital Fortress, uh, which is boring, is that the the head of some huge. American, like the CIA, some security agency, they're trying to figure out his password. And it turns out it's it's just his secretary's name, which is Susan. <laughs> not even numbers, not even like punctuation. It's just Susan. I don't I don't think you could sign up for a Facebook account with a password no. like Susan. They would ask you for more than that. Surely there are extra protections for the head of the CIA. Right, but this isn't this is an ancient Latin password. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, and it also turns out he's been like secretly in love with her in a really creepy way the whole time. So, you know, that's good job, Dan. Great. I want to know, I'm looking at this, uh, the, the ostensible topic here, which is about um, Winston enjoying the ends of movies. What is go left in a in a film? Like, what if you started a film at the beginning and then we're like, what if I rewound past the beginning of the movie and there were secrets there? Ooh, yeah. I feel like that must have been done. So, so you couldn't do it on VHS because you mm-hmm. always rewound to, until the, it physically stopped. Mm-hmm. Yes. Somebody gets Sam Barlow on the horn. It reminds me of CDs having hidden tracks, which were just right. 
that the end track was like 10 minutes long and eight minutes of that was silence and then the track would play. I bet you could make a DVD where every interface to play the movie started at chapter two. Mm. And then you could hit previous chapter or rewind Mm. and get the, yeah, I bet that would work. Mm. Or if Winston was in control, every button that says play just goes to the last act of the movie. (laughs) Right. But, but for example, you couldn't do that on Netflix because, Mm. well, I don't know, like maybe I'm just like a ball of anxiety, but I always know where the scrub bar is in the movie I'm watching. Mm. Like I always know how far I am through that movie. And I feel like I just think of that as like, that's Netflix's interface. It just shows you all the time as far, far you are through the movie. So like that, that's my, my interpretation of doing that idea on Netflix was that you just, you couldn't do it because you, you'd see the scrub bar is like, Oh, it's over here. I must have like, Maybe someone in a foreign country logged into my Netflix account and watched the first 10 minutes of this movie. Now I have to rewind. <laughs> but what if, what if it, uh, this is a nightmare that is impractical because of all the platforms that Netflix is on. What if it started at zero, 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 but you could drag the thing off yeah. the left-hand side of yeah, the screen? Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, mm. you would have to do, you'd have to like update every single Netflix <laughs> app. Mm. I'm sure they'd love that. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure pat- Charlie Brooker has pitched that, and they've been like, "Charles, <laughs> we love you, but no, no, <laughs> no." There's there's a first generation Roku out there that simply will not. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Has has Winston outgrown this then? Yeah, yeah. Now he's now he's watching like episodic stuff, and so like oh. like episodes of uh, you know Paw Patrol or. Transformers rescue bots or what have you, where the whole thing is 20 minutes long. And so like, and it's paced for, you know, a five-year-old. Yeah. It's more fitting. Sometimes I like to skip to the ends of books mm. if I find them boring, just so I get closure. Just read the last word and then. <laughs> <laughs> that piques your interest. You can go back and read more. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I've heard about people doing that with long running sitcoms. Well, the uh, nine season sitcom, you watch the very first episode and then immediately watch the very last episode. Oh, why? Just to see everybody age. Oh, that sounds horrible. That's, I mean, that's what you get. Like, that's the, like a, a sitcom, especially, the whole point of it is that it's the same thing every time. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no story arc there. Yeah. There's no, like, I I guess people get written off the show if they quit or like get sent to prison. <laughs> you could watch the first episode and then the last episode, and you could like by by uh, seeing who's missing, you could say like all these people went to prison. <laughs> <laughs> Do like archaeology by only yeah. watching little bits and pieces of something. <laughs> That's right, and then you'd have to watch the rest of the series to listen for like. Little jokes about what happened to the old, to the, their old friend, to mm. like to figure out like what they went to prison for. Oh, this sounds like a really good video game. Yeah, this is another Sam <laughs> Marlowe Sam game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's taking our hypothetical ideas now too. Uh, <laughs> I hope he's listening to this. <laughs> uh, to the best of my knowledge, Sam Barlow does not listen to the show. Oh, we'll get him. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> If, if he doesn't listen to podcasts, first we have to get him to listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then, like, it's it's a multi-step process. And then he has to listen to this particular episode. Yeah. What if we call it, like, good ideas for Sam Barlow? 
that's his uh, that's his box with a stick propping it up. Okay, that's that's the that's the episode title right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to know about polywater. I've been I've been looking at this and all right, I'm wanting to know. I'll, I'll what tell it you is. what we're gonna end the show. I can't I can't spoil it. I can't. We're not, we can't do. We don't have time for another topic. And I can't spoil it for listeners because I'm going to do this topic in the future. A teaser. Ooh. So, so we're going to end the show now. Andrew, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Let's see. I am, how do I get my Mastodon name? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm dicey at gamedev.place. I don't know how Mastodon works, but mm. that's probably the best thing. I'm also on, what is it? Blue Sky, as I think I'm just dicey there as well. Yeah, that, that's probably the, the best thing if you want to hang out or i'm also in the topic lords discord all right it's at dicey at mastodon.gamedev.place but as always the topic lords discord is the best place to find all the lords <laughs> and and kate oh uh, yes i will if, if i haven't already you should i should send you an invite yeah. to the topic lords discord uh, if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet uh i'm also on blue sky I'm at How Not to Draw on pretty much everything. The main places to follow me are Blue Sky Twitter and Instagram. I don't tweet so much these days because it feels like touching something slimy, but um, <laughs> yeah. I'm there still, unfortunately. And also play Moonstone Island. I'm inside of the game. Oh, <laughs> okay. You could f- find you in Moonstone Island. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for being on. This is so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!